Jude 8 through 16. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. These people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to, Bla to Balaam's error and perish in Kurah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without, fe without fear, shepherds feeding themselves. Waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. And it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, and they are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you just for everyone who's in this room. Um, thank you for your word. Um, I just pray that um, you would guide Derek today in his speeching, in his preaching, um, and just speak to our hearts, and that we would be changed um, and moved to um, just glorify you more um, and love you more and know more about your character. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Um, regarding the Amazon smile thing, Brian, who handles our finances, has asked me to remind you that that doesn't count against your requirement to tithe. Um, <laughs> just throwing that out there. Um, hi. Okay, so um, my name is Derek. For those of you who I haven't met, I, I see there's a few new faces here. Um, I am not the, uh, the regular preacher um, some might even say I'm not that great of a preacher, but here I am, so settle in. Um, this summer, we've been going through this series called The Forgotten Books, where we've taken some time to look at books that we often flip past. Um, they don't have the same sort of like flowery, warm and fuzzy messages of like the Pauline letters or the Gospels, and so um, sometimes we feel like we don't, we're not really drawn there. And so um, we sort of take a concerted effort over the summers to go to those books. They tend to be shorter um, and, and spend some time walking through them together. And we also give different folks the opportunity to get up here and preach, and so <clears throat> this is me. So far we've gone through Philemon, Habakkuk, and now we're in Jude. And if you guys were here last week, um, Nate started laying the foundation to Jude. Now, I'm going to build on that this morning, go figure, um, as we begin to more closely examine the sort of things against which Jude is warning us. If you remember the beginning of Jude, he starts off his letter saying, hey guys, it's Jude. I wanted to write to you about the happiness, the joy of our common salvation, but instead... And then he starts talking about the, um, the wrath of God um, and the, the danger of false teaching. 
Um, so we're going to look at verses 8 through 16, as you might have guessed from Jamie's reading. So while I'm doing the introduction here, if you want to go ahead and find that on your, um, your mobile device or if you're old school, you know, your paper Bible. Um, by the way, did you guys see Nate's Bible last week? I'm surprised he could carry the table with that thing on top of it. Like, that was massive. He's so holier than I am. Um, <laughs> I don't even have one. Um, so anyway, Jude is just one page. So if you're lost, go to the beginning of Revelation Turn back one page. You're there. Um, It's almost as easy to find as uh, Genesis 1. Um, So the first thing that Jude says to his folks is, hey, it was Jesus who led the Israelites out of captivity. And it was also Jesus who destroyed the ungodly afterwards. Right? Um, So... He then begins to talk about these, these, this example of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? That, that these folks are like Sodom and Gomorrah that the Lord destroyed. And Nate went back and reread that story for us. And I'm going to jump back and touch on a couple of things that I think are relevant for today. But um, today isn't today, not like 2017. Um, the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah, if you remember from the story, were guilty of doing what, right? They were, they were engaging in uh, sexually immoral acts. They were oppressing people. And so um, God... God actually is, is judging them, right? And so there's this beautiful image, a uh, beautiful uh, situation in the beginning of Genesis 19 before the destruction, or it might be at the end of Genesis 18, where Abram's out in his yard, I don't know, like tanning or something, uh, not like sunbathing, like leather, because it's, come on, guys. Um, and he sees these three figures walking down the road, and one of them is God, right? Jesus, if, if you understand theophanies, right? Like the appearance of God in the Old Testament. No one's seen the Father. This is Jesus. And he's got these two angels on either side. And he, he says, God says sort of figuratively, should I tell Abraham what we're here to do? And I'll tell him. And he says, I have heard the cries of the oppressed. The cries of the oppressed have come up before me and I have come down to see for myself if this is true. So there's more going on here than just sexual immorality, although that is wrong, right? What's going on is a, a, a culture of oppression, a culture of violence, a culture of, of fear being enacted by these ungodly individuals, right? So it's not just their immoral acts that are, that are damning them. It's that they are pressing themselves on others, Right? So the Spirit led Jude to address false teaching and ungodliness because these things have lasting and severe consequences, right? Um, and, and, and there seemed to have been some infiltration of these uh, things in the church that Jude is writing to, in the audience that he's writing to. And so um, this morning, I've got three things that I want us to talk about because um, that's how I always organize my thoughts. So first... I want us to understand the character and nature of the false teachers. Jude gives us some excellent examples of their type, and so it's important that that we consider what it is we're contending against, right? What do we need to look for? Second, I want us to consider the reality of God's wrath. So Nate sort of brought this up last week, um, but I want to go back to it. I want to sit there for a second this morning and talk a little bit more about the wrath of God. Because um, we're all for this concept of a loving God, um, but it's sometimes difficult for us to accept the truth or understand how um, God is also full of 
wrath as much as he's full of love. Um, and then finally, I want us to understand the reason that all of this is relevant to us. Um, this isn't just information to file away somewhere in your brain. This is part of a real life or death struggle, right? Um, so it isn't enough to know what Jude is talking about when he describes these false teachers. We need to understand that um, it's one of the most prescient warnings to the church, the big C, like global body of believers, every bit as much in 2017 as it was in 60 AD when it was originally written. So let's start with verses 8 through 10. So Jude is establishing a, a foundational truth, I think, about these um, who he calls these blasphemers, these false teachers. He says, Yet in like manner, these also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So right from the beginning of this passage, we see a distinction being made, as Jude says, these people. Throughout history, um, there have been divisions in society, right? We're all familiar with this. There's, there's rich and poor. There's conqueror and defeated. There's owner and slave. There's white and black. There's man and woman, liberal and conservative. And these divisions have contributed to sweeping and severe injustices ever since the Garden of Eden when Adam sought to blame Eve for his sin. And so where, where you fall along these fault lines determines your value, right? Um, we are taught to define ourselves in American society, in Western culture, and how you are defined in part by that culture determines the outcome of so many things for you. And at different times throughout history, there's even been elements within the church guilty of perpetuating these divisions um, in the worst ways as, as scripture was twisted to teach slaves that it wasn't okay to resist, Right? Um, of course, that's completely unbiblical. But the Bible makes only one distinction with respect to humanity. There is only one thing that will separate you from another person in terms of value before the God of the universe, and that is there's the faithful and there's the faithless. And so from Gen Genesis to Revelation, the only factor that carries any weight before God is whether or not one has faith in him. We see in Romans that Abraham believed God's promise to give him a son. And Paul says, and it was counted to him as righteousness. In Galatians 3.28, Paul writes, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Faith is the fault line. And so with that in mind, let's jump back for a second to the, so the story of Sodom and Gomorrah um, that Nate read for us last week. How many of you were here last week, first of all? Okay, so there's a good number. How many of you sort of squirmed in your seat a little bit at different points in that story? If you didn't, maybe you weren't listening because there was a scene in there when the angels are in Lot's house, and what happens? The, the crowd comes and presses on the door, and they say, let us, let us have those men. 
Let us have our way with them, right? Basically is what they're saying. And Lot goes out, and what does he do? Does he say, guys, you're being unreasonable. Stop it. This is ungodly. No. Like a coward, he says, how about this? How about you leave these angels alone and take my daughters instead? That's, that's vile. That's cowardly. There's no excuse for that. And yet, Lot was spared. When he's really no different, it seems, than the crowd who's beating down his door. Right? Genesis 19.29 says this, and this is important. This is after the story is over. It says, So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. Do you see? Lot wasn't saved on his own merit. Remember the the scene where um, Abraham is interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah and he says, what if there were 50 righteous people? God says, I wouldn't destroy it. What if there were 40 righteous people? God says, "I, I wouldn't destroy it. What if there were 10 righteous people? And God says, I wouldn't destroy it. But Abraham stops short of saying, what if there was one? Because he knows there's not one. He doesn't say, but my, my, my cousin Lot, can you pull him out? He, do, he doesn't intercede for Lot directly, but, but because of Lot's attachment to Abraham, the man of faith, God rescued him. Abraham in this story is a shadow of Jesus Christ. The, the one to whom if we are attached, then there, there's no condemnation for us, right? Um, now that's a whole sermon in and of itself, but I wanted to bring that up to, to sort of explain that nugget in there because that's really important. It's what we're talking about today when we talk about these divisions. What separates, at the end of the day, these, these false teachers, these false prophets from God's people? It is faith specifically faith in Jesus. So these people are those who reside outside the grace of Jesus Christ, and they try to infiltrate the church. Jude describes these false teachers as motivated by their self-interest. So they rely on dreams and sensuality rather than genuine prophecy and obedience. They reject authority, particularly spiritual authority, and worse yet, assume a level of authority that they don't have. Jude uses the example of um, blaspheming glorious ones, and so that's translated in some um, as even just angels outright, but that's what he's talking about. They curse angels, or or they they will demote angels in the created order and put themselves above them in terms of being able to control events they try to. Jude backs this story up with a backs this up with a story of Michael arguing with Satan. Now, how many of you remember that story from, from uh, Sunday school when you were growing up? None of you. That, that, oh, come on. If your church went through Jude in Sunday school, that's great. But Jude, like this story that he shares comes from the apocryphal book, The Assumptions of Moses. That's what most of the commentaries I was reading would say about this. Um, apocryphal means that we can't take these books and say that everything from the introduction to the final period is spirit-inspired um, like the canon of the Bible, right? And so you'll hear about apocryphal books that, that aren't really, like, bad, but they're also not, like, 
Like we don't preach from them on Sunday mornings. Um, some of the things in there are not that great, but then there are some things that are spirit-inspired. And so Jude taking this and, and later uh, a line from First Enoch, when he talks about Enoch, the seventh son of Adam, um, had this prophecy. Um, in that, God is affirming this, right? And so he's conveying this truth. If God allowed it to be used in the canon of scripture, then we can only assume that this is good and truthful. But Michael doesn't curse Satan, right? So Michael, the the chief angel, is arguing with the devil about the body of Moses. I don't know why. Um, And instead of him looking at that situation and saying, uh, and condemning the devil himself, he he says the Lord do it, right? He reserves that level of condemnation for the one who has the authority to do that, and that is God himself, right? But these people, these blasphemers, they walk around as though they have the authority to do that. Verse 10, then, is sort of a summary of Jude's charge against the blasphemers in a way. So they don't understand, and they don't try to understand. They merely chase after their own understanding because they are the highest authority in their lives. Jude writes, But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. They go off of their, their immediate understanding. And they don't try to dig any deeper. We see that uh, an insufficient understanding or appreciation of Scripture, and we can see this in history, becomes a stumbling block. And history bears this out, right? So uh, a couple of, of examples. Pelagian couldn't reconcile the concepts of grace and free will and original sin. So he tossed out grace and original sin and began teaching that perfection was attainable this side of glory if you just made the right choices. If you constrained your will enough, you can do it, right? It's kind of like a blend of Buddhism and self-help almost. Sibelius couldn't fathom the form or function of the Trinity, right? And, and who really can? But so what he did was try to oversimplify it. And he said, well, the Father, Son, and Spirit are really just three modes of one God as opposed to three persons in one God, three persons sharing uh, the same substance. And the list of heresies goes on and on. And nearly every heresy starts with a lack of, of understanding, with a a wealth of self-knowledge, right? These verses we're talking about this morning are driving home the idea that Jude used to open his letter, that sound teaching is constantly under siege, especially from ignorance, from selfishness, and from pride. So consider the examples that Jude gives us in the next few verses. So picking up in verse 11. Excuse me, that was gross. Woe to them! Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of grain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. You gotta, you gotta love Jude's irony as he says that they are wandering stars, these bright emitters of light, they're actually reserved for darkness. Um, New Testament humor. Um, but, but wait, Jude, tell us how you really feel. Um, from the examples of Cain, Balaam, and Korah, we can draw three broad categories of false teaching equally sinister. 
So back in Genesis 4, we find the story of Cain and Abel, right? So the story goes that um, Abel brings his sacrifice to God. It's uh, uh, the first of his flock, right? And Cain brings his sacrifice, which is the fruit of the ground. And what happens? God accepts Abel's sacrifice and rejects Cain's. And we know what happens from there, right? Um, Cain is upset and in his jealousy kills Abel. Why did God reject Cain's sacrifice and accept Abel's, right? Um, I think the most likely explanation is that when Abel brought his sacrifice to the Lord, it wasn't just what he laid on the altar that he was bringing to God, right? It was his heart. It was his faith. It was his affections, Cain was really just offering whatever it was he slapped down. Take a quick look at Psalm 50, starting in verse 8. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all, of the, all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. From the mouth of God himself, he says, it's not about the sacrifice. It's about your heart. That's what I want. I want your thanksgiving. I want your honor. I want your praise. I want your worship. This is necessary. The sacrifices are necessary because of sin. But what's going on here, what he's addressing is that Israel, in their ignorance, had, had fallen into this faithlessness where they were just going through the motions. Well, I sacrificed my bull, so now I can go and do whatever I want, essentially. And he says, no, no, I don't accept your sacrifices, and here's why. Because the letter of the law is not what I'm after. Cain's offering was rejected because he was engaging in in vain religion. He was going through the motions, checking off all of his boxes, just trying to get by and be seen as faithful, as righteous, as holy. He wasn't devoted to God. He wasn't interested in knowing him. He just wanted to keep him happy. But our obedience is not designed to bend God's will into our favor. Devotees of dead religion will always out themselves in the end, but not before taking others down with them, right? And so Cain murders his brother. Thousands of years later, the Pharisees, right, the, the, the more and better Cain, um, murdered Jesus out of their jealousy, out of their desire to protect their religiosity and their ability to, to put on the front and be seen as holy, Why? Because at its core, it's primarily about protecting your own status and your own interests. It's completely, 100% antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which calls us to deny ourselves in pursuit of God's kingdom. This is the very essence of vain religion, a religion focused on outward obedience while nursing internal rebellion. Balaam, 
right? He mentions Balaam. Um, if, if you have not read this story in Numbers, it's like Numbers 16, I really encourage you to go back and read it. It's one of the more entertaining exchanges of the Bible. Um, and, and what's interesting about it to me on one level is that Balaam is not a Levite. He's not an Israelite. He's not Jewish. But he's a pagan priest. And so what happens is this, this Moabite king is getting ready to face Israel. He notices that Israel sort of like camped along his border, and he's going, oh, that's not good. I need a wall. Um, so he goes to Balaam, and he says, hey, you're an oracle. You make prophecies. You cast curses on people. I need you to curse Israel. And he brings him, in order to, to pay him for his efforts, like tons of gold and silver and precious stones and food. And he sends this like really impressive delegation to meet Balaam. And Balaam is it's like, I really want that. And God comes to Balaam and says, you can't curse Israel. I'm not going to let you do that. So Balaam sends word back to the Moabite king. He says, I can't do it. God won't let me. So the king sends another delegation. And again, Balaam says, I can't do that. And then finally, God says, you know what? Look, he's not going to give up. I want you to go, but you can only say that which I tell you to say. So the king takes uh, Balaam up to a high place where he can see the people of Israel. And he says, all right, do your work. Balaam says, all right, build me an altar. So he goes over to the altar, and God tells him what to say. And he goes over, and he opens his mouth. And instead of cursing Israel, he begins to bless them. And the king's like, no, 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 you don't get it. Stop, stop, stop. I need you to curse them. And he says, oh, I can't. God won't let me. I can only say what God says. And he says, well, let's go try another place. Because the king of Moab thinks, well, if God's telling you that you can't, then maybe if we go to another place, God can't go with us. I'll get you away from that influence, right? Because he's a moron. And they go to another high place and they build another altar and Balaam goes again and again. God tells him what to say and again Balaam goes to the edge of the precipice and he looks at Israel and he blesses them. And at this point, I imagine like the, the king of Moab is just like beside himself. He's like, what are you doing, right? So again, they go to a third place, and the entire thing happens all over again. He builds the altars, he goes over, he gets the word from the Lord, he steps up, and he blesses them. And it's like, you're not helping me at all. And then this other thing happens that we find out about sprinkled through Scripture, and, and, and ultimately in Revelation it tells us that what actually happened was because Balaam really wanted the riches and the glory that the king of Moab was offering him. He recognized that he couldn't voice a curse. So he tells the king instead, you know what you ought to do? Send some of your women into the Israelite camp and have them seduce the Israelite soldiers. So the king does that, and it works. And at the end of this little escapade, 24,000 people are killed by God's wrath for their sin, for their encouragement of others to sin, for, for their faithlessness. Why? Because Balaam sought personal gain and deliberately encouraged others to sin in order to get it. Korah, along with 250 other leaders of Israel. Korah was a Levite, which means that he was in the order of priests. So you guys know there's 12 tribes of Israel and, and each one kind of had their thing. Levites were set apart. They were the priests of the temple. That's a big deal in 
Israel, Israel's culture. Um, that's a highly regarded position, a highly regarded tribe. And Korah, a member of this tribe, brings 250 others with him, and he goes to Moses and Aaron, and he says, what makes you so special that you get to be our leaders? Are not the whole host of God's people just as holy as you? All right, so there's like a, a little kernel of truth in there, right? Like, I'm not better than you as a Christian because I'm up here with a microphone and sermon notes, right? That's not the way this works. It just so happens that this is what I'm doing today. Moses says to him, but like, come on, you're, you're a Levite. God has placed special trust in you. You are a leader of the people. Like, you have, you have all of this to do for God's glory. Is that not enough for you? And it wasn't, so they have like a, a, a duel of sorts where they take these censers, which is what they put incense in, and they would light them. And Moses says, all right, we'll take these censers, and if God lights my incense, then I'm the leader. And if God lights your incense, you're the leader. All right, challenge accepted. Again, foolish, because if God has already affirmed the calling on Moses, you know this is not going to go your way. And so they go out, and what happens? Lo and behold, Moses' incense ignites, Korah's doesn't, and instead the earth opens up and swallows all 250 of Korah's rebellion. Did not go as planned. But here's the thing. Korah wasn't really challenging Moses. Who was he really challenging? the one who put Moses in charge, right? Moses was the, 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 the interceding priest for Israel, really. Like, he's the one who's going to God and getting the law and, and pleading on their behalf. Like, that was his role. God put him in that role. And Korah said, God, you're wrong. This should be me, was really what's going on behind the scenes. And so Korah takes this little kernel of truth that, that you're not holier than the rest of us, you're not better than the rest of us, but he's not being an altruistic revolutionary, right? He's selfishly encouraging these others to come and challenge him because they're strength in numbers, right? Um, and in the end, he's rejecting God-ordained authority and he's twisting truth to make that the case. So it's pretty clear that false teaching can be dangerous, but it's not always obvious. And so we must be a church uh, and I mean that globally, I mean that locally, um, I mean that on an individual level. There's, there's no such thing as an individual church, don't twist that. Um, we must be able to discern truth from falsehood. We must contend for the faith. This does not mean that we go around beating people with canes and Bibles like we're role-playing the cleansing of the temple. That's not what that means. What it really is getting at, to contend for the faith, means that we must be on the lookout for people who seek to draw our affections away from Jesus and his gospel. And this can be difficult, and that's why biblical literacy is so important. How many of you have heard, cleanliness is next to godliness? How many of you assumed at one point in your life that that was, that was spoken in the Bible somewhere? It's, it's in the book of First Hezekiah chapter 3. And if you don't know that the book of 1 Hezekiah chapter 3 doesn't exist, then that's my point. Like we, we sometimes assume that if it sounds good enough, then it must be good enough, and that's not the way it works. If the argument sounds good enough and sounds compelling, that's not enough if at its core it's wrong. 
And we have to be able to recognize that. If you have a low view of Scripture or you spend little time in it, you're lowering your defenses. So consider again what Jude is writing in in verses 12, 13, and then I'm going to skip up to 16. These are hidden, these, these blasphemers, these false teachings, these are hidden reefs at your love feast as you feast, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the wind, fruitless trees of late autumn, twice dead and uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters. I always say that loudmouth breathers in my mind. Showing favoritism to gain advantage. I don't know why I confess some things to you. Um, So the take home from these three verses, and please take heed, these people look right. They look promising. Yes, there is as much danger in people who are clearly wrong, who are clearly preaching a false doctrine. There are clearly dangers in cults and and organizations that take the gospel and they they strip out its power and they leave it with self-help or or determinism or whatever the thing is, right? Therapeutic moralistic deism, right? Like there are things that are clearly wrong. But then there are things that don't, and those are the most dangerous. They aren't wearing robes and warts, turning people into newts. They don't weigh as much as a duck. But no one has seen that movie. I knew this was going to happen. This was, my, this was my dividing line for you, and only one of you is on the good side of it. Two. Two people are on the good side of it. You're there because I put you there, not because you wanted to be. It was my wife, by the way, in case you were wondering. <laughs> I made her watch that scene like two weeks ago. Anyway, sorry. So my point is they, they, they blend in. They are hidden reefs. And so how many of you have ever been on a boat in like low water? Um, it's, it's kind of uh, terrifying for me because I have a respect for the water in that it can kill me because I can't breathe in it. I'm not afraid of the water. I'm not that extreme, but in a boat, when you're going along, so I remember, um, I went to Costa Rica one time. This story really isn't even that important. I went to Costa Rica once, and we, we arrived at like two in the morning. It's pitch black. It's foggy because it's a rainforest, and we drive from the airport in, uh, was it San Juan? Um, is that the capital of Costa Rica? Okay. Um, all the way up this winding mountain road, through a banana field, and then the, the bus just stops, and they're like, okay, get out. So we get all of our stuff and we get into this boat that's just fiberglass resin with poles glued on either corner to have this little canopy of like corrugated plastic and chairs. Now the chairs are like, okay, so the one chair that was like that is probably behind there. But you know the old school chairs that are plastic, they're hard plastic? And when we'd break and you'd go to sit in them, you'd like cut your butt because they'd pinch it off, right? It was those chairs bolted into the floor and then they took... Uh, like silicone caulking and put around the edges so that it wouldn't leak through the screw, screw holes. Ah. And then we get in the boat and it's foggy. Again, it's two in the morning. And the way that they operated this was there was a person in the back steering 
And there was a person in the front, I kid you not, with their cell phone on the brightest setting at the back going, left, left, right, stop. Like they're calling out directions to the back. And underneath the water, there had just been a flood, which is part of the reason we were down there because it washed out a lot of the bank around the Serapiki River. And there were entire trees in the water and you couldn't see them. And so the person at the front is just hoping that a branch would poke up through the front so that he could try to get the boat to steer away from it in time for us to not hit it. And I kid you not, he was awful at it. And so frequently what would happen was we would hit this hidden, uh, hidden obstacle under the water and the boat would rock. And I was literally thinking in my mind, how deep is the Serapiki? If the boat goes under, can I stand on top of the roof? Will it hold my weight? Can the alligators crawl on top of this? Probably they can. This is a hopeless situation, Right? Um, the things under the water present a massive danger. They can snag and sink the boats. They're waterless clouds that cause a desperate soul to hope for rain and a spiritual drought and the relief never comes. You guys ever had that happen? Like you, you are hoping for relief that never comes? You know how soul crushing that can be? And then he, he compares them to wandering stars. And this is probably my favorite, that, favorite example that he gives because um, there's like new information since 2005 that makes this even more relevant. Um, but so if you guys know that Polaris, if you're ever out in the wilderness and you can find Polaris, you can more or less navigate your way out of anything, right? But the problem is Polaris is the only star that has a relatively fixed position. That's why it's called the North Star, because you can relatively discern north by finding it. And if you, if you watch a speed camp, what do you call it, the time-lapse video of the stars rotating in the night sky, you'll see Polaris relatively fixed. It kind of does a little bit of this, but it stays in its lane. And then all of the other stars are just doing this. That's why you can't really find Orion's belt in the middle of some season that I'm not familiar with here in Florida, because it's on the other side of the planet, right? And so these wandering stars, if you're trying to track your, your journey based on these wandering stars, what happens? Off by an inch, you're off by a mile. And so you would wind up like standing at the shore in Egypt when you were really trying to get to like Turkey or something. I don't know how that would really work in 60 AD. Um, and then in 2005, right, I, one of my favorite hobbies is to watch science videos on YouTube and read um, NASA articles. Because I wish that I was sciencey. Um, I'm not. And in 2005, they found proof of this theory they had come up with of, of something called hypervelocity stars. And a hypervelocity star is a star that isn't anchored. So our sun is traveling on a predictable path around the giant black hole in the middle of our universe, or galaxy, galaxy, right? Um, there's also a giant black hole at the center of the universe. I don't know if you guys knew this, apparently. Um, and so the, the sun has a predictable path. We know where it's going. The planets are revolving around it, and we know relatively where we're going to be in a billion years when the earth comes to another point and the sun comes to another point. But these hypervelocity stars are not fixed, and they shoot across the universe at hypervelocity. They're so good at naming things in science. The speed of this star they found in 2005 1.8 million miles an hour brings a new level of danger to this concept of a wandering star being dangerous because imagine if that were to enter our solar system. 
or even just our galaxy, right? I mean, things are spaced out, but if you're traveling 1.8 million miles an hour and you are pure fire, something is not going to end well, right? Um, And so the last thing that, that Jude shares here about these false teachers in verse 16, they're grumblers and they're boasters. And so here's where lifestyle really begins to set folks apart. A Christian, a devotee of Jesus Christ, cannot grumble and cannot boast. We can't. Like, no matter how bad our situation is, if we have a proper understanding of our relationship with God, there is going to be joy under pain, under suffering, under confusion, under fear. There will always be joy, and so we will find some way to be thankful And we're not going to boast because we understand that that we, like Lot, we've not been saved because God looked at us and goes, well, there's that righteous one. Right? We understand that we are broken, that we are sinful, and that we are saved only by the grace of God and the mercy of Jesus. And so we don't boast. We have salvation that we don't deserve. We've been pursued, though we're not worthy. We are loved, though we're wicked, and none of this has been the result of our own merit. And as a result, none of us can grumble, none of us can boast. To be clear, grumbling here is not referring to, like, when I stub my toe and I have words to say about how it hurts, right? It's not, it's not acknowledging that things are bad, that things are confusing, that we are in an emotional state. This is a lifestyle of always finding something to complain about. Something is always off. And so um, Charles Spurgeon, um, I thought about for, for Christmas, Kevin got all of the elders this Charles Spurgeon glass that has him smoking a cigar on the front. I wanted to bring that and set it here for this quote because it's just so Spurgeon-y. Um, He says this, you know the sort of people alluded to here. Nothing ever satisfies them. They are discontented even with the gospel. The bread of heaven must be cut into three pieces and served on dainty napkins or else they cannot eat it. Ours is served on plastic and it's not really from heaven. It's from Publix, I think. Um, Jamie was cutting up with scissors beforehand that I assume she washed. Um, And very soon their soul hates even this light bread. There is no way by which a Christian man can serve God so as to please them, the grumblers. They will pick holes in every preacher's coat. And if the great high priest himself were here, they would find fault with the color of the stones in his breastplate. Grumbling might even take a holy tone or theme, but grumbling comes ultimately from joylessness. Joylessness is not a mark of one who follows Jesus. It's the mark of someone who seeks to gratify their own desires and to bend others against their selfishness until they snap. Where we're called to lay aside our preferences, grumblers insist upon theirs. Where we were called to be light to a fallen world, grumblers are wandering stars reserved for darkness, like the gloom they cast on others. But the darkness that these false teachers are destined to suffer is not a a quiet, peaceful place, right? It's not like that moment right before the sun comes up and the alarm hasn't gone off and you're just laying there enjoying the peace and the quiet that's immediately ruined by your dog retching because it eats grass. Um... (laughs) Verse 14, is that just me? Um, Verse 14. 
It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These verses, along with verse 5 earlier in the book, bring us face to face with an undeniable trait of our God. He is not only capable of executing a wrathful judgment, but he promises to do so against all people who are ungodly, of all people who are faithless. The wrath of God is real, and it's aimed at these faithless people. They are, there, there may be some common grace right now for folks who are not, um, not believers, right? People who don't follow the Lord, right? And common grace in this case would be like, um, like people who lie, cheat, and steal, and yet make billions of dollars treating people poorly, right? They're able to find some way to distract themselves from the, their true nature with some comfort of life. That's, that's common grace, that, that people are allowed to enjoy that. God allows that. But there is a day coming when there's no longer going to be a way for any of us to distract ourselves from the, the penalty of our sin. It's not going to continue to be forbearing. It's going to be called to account. And so God is wrathful. If that idea makes you squirm in your seat a little bit when I talk about it, um, I think you also have to understand that God's wrath is vital to our understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Once we understand, um, sorry, if we, if we don't understand why we need Jesus, then we see no point in Christ, and we certainly don't see any value in obedience. Once we understand that God has pardoned us through Jesus, that we have been forgiven, that our debt has been paid, only then can we pursue the sort of obedience that God demands, our affections. Never in Scripture does obedience precede faith, except when Jesus' obedience preceded our faith. And yet so many persist in trying to substitute their obedience or their own perceived righteousness for faith. And praise God that we have the cross to look back on and see God's wrath satisfied on our behalf. Where where we see Jesus like the ultimate indication of God's mercy towards us taking on the full weight of God's wrath. Like, the, like I, I hope you understand that when we talk about the cross and we talk about the, the death of Jesus, the fact that he died is secondary to why he died. It was necessary because the wrath of God was being stored up for us. Jesus took it on for us. So his death was more like the agony of the cross, really excruciating, right? In fact, the word excruciating, if you break it down, is Latin, from the cross. 
because it was a whole new level of pain, but it was nothing compared to taking on the full wrath of God. Jesus is the total antithesis of these false teachers where they claim privilege, riches, or authority that isn't theirs and leave destruction in their wake. Jesus set aside his privileges, riches, and authority in order to save us from destruction. He stands between God and man, the only difference between a righteous and unrighteous person. And so then how beautiful is the cross? I know that there's some who are still sort of unwilling to consider the fact that God is wrathful. So let me share with you how I personally came to grips with this. Um, so I, I was listening to a sermon by Tim Keller a number of years ago on the reality of God's wrath. And in it, he said two very profound things that have stuck with me ever since. First, we in our postmodern Western culture tend to view wrath as the opposite of love. And so you can't love someone if you are also exhibiting wrath towards something, right? Like, they're, they're, the, they're opposites of one another. We have this idea that love is fueled by tolerance, acceptance, and to a large extent, staying in your own lane, right? Like, I can't pull somebody aside and say, hey, you're making a poor life decision right now that has cosmic consequences for you because that's my truth, and you have your truth, and I'm not allowed to encroach on what you have for yourself because it makes you feel good, and I don't want to make you feel bad. But wrath is not the opposite of love. Hate is the opposite of love. And this leads me to the second thing. Wrath, what it is, is anger, or sorry, wrath or anger is love in action. Wrath is love in action. What does that mean? So here's an illustration. I am a husband and a father. I have a wife and I have kids. One of them's not here yet. I'm really excited to meet him. Um, if someone were to break into my home and challenge the safety of my family, would it be loving if I said, my definition of truth is that you're not allowed to hurt my family. Yours is that you need the things that I have in here, including the life of my family, so please take what you need. Would that be loving? No, right? Well, what's going to happen because I love my family, if I am home when that happens, there will be a fight, there will be a fight. If I'm not home, I will bring down the full weight of the law on the shoulders of whoever dares threaten the life of my family. There will be no legal mercy on them because they have taken from me something that I love dearly or something that my family needs, which is a sense of safety and security. Why am I willing to do that to the person who is challenging that? Is it because I hate them? Or is it because I love my family? My wrath over their pain and suffering is an outpouring of my affections for them. So in other words, I would be angry because that which I love has been threatened or harmed. And so likewise, God's wrath is part and parcel of his love. He would not be loving if he was not also wrathful against things that challenge what he loves. 
And so when we understand this properly, when we understand that our wrath, that our anger, reveals what we love and is part of that same concept, then it begins to reveal a lot about us and where our affections lie. Right? So when I'm driving home today, I'm going to make a prediction. I'm going to prophesy from the stage. Somebody on 43rd, where it turns 55 miles an hour, will drive 35 miles an hour. And you can ask my wife what's going to happen when that event occurs. I'm going to say some things. I'm going to huff and sigh. I'm going to be upset. And my son in the back seat is going to go, Daddy, are you okay? What's really going on there? I, I am selfishly angry because this person who's driving 35 and a 55 is, is stepping on my desires. They're stepping on my selfish desire to get home and eat or take a nap or whatever the case might be. Today it's going to be taking a nap. Um, how dare they slow my pace? And so my anger at them is an, is an attempt to control that situation so that I can get what I want. Our anger is an attempt to protect what we love. And so what, what does God's wrath reveal about what he adores? His wrath's revealed against ungodliness and those who practice it because in the end, such things lead to death and destruction. And God loves his creation and he loves his people and he doesn't want to see that happen. So why does this matter? We have to be vigilant because as Jude says, false teachers are everywhere and they're not always obvious. We've seen that there are real consequences. False teaching breeds disobedience and incurs God's wrath and sometimes it's difficult to detect. But why must we be vigilant. Why is that still relevant to us? Why did Jude find it necessary to write about the importance of contending for the faith rather than the joy of salvation? That's because false teachers are not just a philosophical concept. It's not something that you might encounter in your life. It's not this thing that other people are going to have to deal with and you are never going to see. They are very real and a very present threat, and they have come. They've come in the past. They are here now. They will continue to come in the future. We're told this time and again in scriptures. Jesus tells us in Mark 13, through 23, that false prophets are going to come, and not only are they going to come, but they're going to come performing signs and wonders in order to lead you astray. Paul says in Acts 20, 29 through 31, that wolves will come after he leaves them and says further that these wolves will even come from those who seem outwardly godly. He says literally, even from those among you, people that you know, people in your church. It's crucial that we know what to look for in false teachers because we know they are coming and we know the consequences of their influence. So Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, 15 through 20 that it is possible to recognize these folks in spite of their signs and wonders. Look at what he says here. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. Again, they're, they're hidden, they conceal, but are inwardly ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? 
So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Now, there's a lot of discussion of fruit in this passage. Why? Because Jesus is repeating it over and over so that you get it and understand. Look for the fruit. Look for what they're doing. Look for what's coming from their actions. Look at their lifestyle. They can't fake it. We can recognize false teachers by the fruit of their lives. We recognize the fruit by understanding what the Bible says that separates good fruit from bad. Right? If you don't have a functional understanding of the word of God, you will be deceived. It will happen. We know that by increasing our biblical literacy, meditating on the truth of God's word and keeping watch for false doctrine, um, we can we can be prepared. And so that's one of the reasons that, one of the reasons that um, the elders of this church, we have decided, Brent, Brian, Kevin, and I, to teach the Bible the way that we do. We don't do topical sermons. It's not because there's anything inherently wrong with a topical sermon, but we recognize in ourselves that, that there's a tendency to want to talk about things that we want to talk about, and so we will sacrifice things that God has spoken about. And so if we go through the Bible book by book and verse by verse more or less, we are not going to leave anything on the table, all right? We're not going to risk preaching the Jeffersonian Bible, essentially. Um, truth and doctrine matter. I think that when and if we, um, if we call ourselves Christians and claim to believe in the saving grace of Jesus and the gospel, when and if we can recognize that the gospel is hope for a broken world, like it's not a waterless cloud. It is the relief that everyone is yearning for, right? When we recognize that, then we'll take this as seriously as Jude does. We're not going to want to see it diluted. We're not going to want to see it twisted, perverted. When we hear something that is just not quite right, like I'm not a theologian, like I, I haven't been to school on this, but there are some things that I will hear people say, I'm just like, I don't, it doesn't sit right with me. Because I'm, I'm trying, and not always the best at it, but I'm trying to allow the word of God to influence me, to challenge my notions, to challenge my preferences, to challenge my opinions, to challenge my beliefs even about what it is I believe in the first place by meditating on the word, allowing the spirit to, to work through that, to reveal truth. The word of God is not just philosophy. The word of God is not just philosophy. It's hope. It's salvation if we believe. And so we ought to guard it so that others might know the richness of God's love and mercy. May that be true of us. May that be true of Aletheia. And may that be true of Christ's church around the world. That we would value the truth of God's word and contend for it daily. And not accept anything less than truth from those who would claim to be a follower of Christ. So let's pray. We're going to take communion here in a second. Um, we do this every week. Uh, some folks think that's a little bit too much. You don't have to take it every week, but we offer it because there, there are things to be 
considered, right? I mean, think about the truth that we just went through. Think, think about what you have been saved from and, and what communion is. The, the bread, if you, in case this is like new to you, I'm, I'm never going to assume that everybody here is on the same page. The bread, um, if, you, if you go to the, the um, Last Supper in the Gospels, Jesus takes the bread and he says, I, I want you to, to understand that this is my body that's been broken for you. And he breaks the bread and passes it out to the disciples. And so the bread is a representation of the fact that God came to earth in the, in, in the Son, died for us, broken on our behalf, took God's wrath, that broke him, right? And then we, we drink juice. Some churches do wine, we do juice because um, people are like all over the place on whether or not alcohol is okay. Um, plus, grape juice is cheaper, barely, but it's cheaper. Um, and this represents the, the blood of Christ that was poured out for us, right? Because there was a sacrifice demanded for our transgressions, and it should have been us. It should have been our lives, but, but God allowed a substitute, and that ultimate substitute was Jesus, whose lifeblood became our sacrifice. So think about that, how that relates to you um, before you come up and, and take some, okay? So let me pray. Father God, I thank you so much for, um, for your word and for your love for us. I pray that we as um, believers would be um, changed and challenged by what you have to say for us. I pray, God, that we would contend for the faith, that we would be on guard, that we would be able to recognize deceivers, false prophets, false teaching, and that we would only pursue you with all of our hearts and minds and strength. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.